We're continuing with our sermon series through the book of Revelation, and we have a fairly long scripture reading this morning, Revelation chapter 17 and 18 and half of chapter 19. I had thought of asking you to read this for homework, but then I recalled the main key verse of our series, chapter 1 and verse 3, where John says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And so simply reading and listening and taking to heart God's word this morning will bring its own blessing today. And anything that I might have to add after that will definitely be a secondary blessing. The main point is to read it and listen to it and take it to heart. The passage is actually fairly straightforward to understand. And just to anticipate ourselves slightly, John is speaking about the Roman Empire and its emperors and rulers, but he's also describing any nation or individual or society that raises itself up against God. So let's dive straight in, though. Revelation 17, verse 1, to chapter 19 and verse 10. John writes, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. Inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings. 
and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitutes sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She's become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and of olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and the bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe! Woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour... Such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? 
They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. And after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And these indeed are the true words of God. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we look into this vision that you gave to John, Holy Spirit, you who then inspired him to write these words, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us through your word this morning. And allow us to order our hearts and lives aright in the light of it. For we ask it in your name. Amen. So if you've been following this series, you'll remember that John has introduced us to Babylon back in chapters 14 and 16. But now he devotes this whole chunk of the revelation to the subject of Babylon. And out of all of the many things that we could look at in these verses, I'd like to look just at three aspects of Babylon. Her identity, her personality, and her destiny. And then we'll look at two calls that John makes in this passage. 
the call to come out, and the call to rejoice. So firstly, Babylon's identity. John begins in chapter 17 by introducing us to a woman who is said to be a great prostitute and who sits on the seven-headed beast that we looked at back in chapter 13. Remember, representing state power. We're told that these seven heads are seven hills that the woman sits on, as well as being seven rulers. And we're told in chapter 17 and verse 18 that the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And so for John's first readers, all of this imagery could only be a reference to the great city of Rome, which was famously founded on seven hills, and to its rulers, and to the vast Roman Empire of which Rome was the capital. But actually, throughout the Bible, Babylon is a symbol of any great power that sets itself up against God. Right now, it happens to be Rome, but in times past, it really was the Babylonian Empire. You may remember the founding of Babylon all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, where we read that people moved east, away from God, and they built a tower at a place called Babel a tower that would reach up to the heavens in opposition to God. Later on in Babylon's history, in Daniel, we read about one of the kings of Babylon who looks out over the magnificent city from the roof of his palace and declares, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And so in time, God brings down the nation of Babylon. Babylon becomes a symbol for all God-opposing, God-denying nations. And John here uses words from Isaiah and from Jeremiah that speaks about the destruction of a nation that opposed God. But Babylon is not simply a symbol of nations of the past or even of the present, Rome, but of nations in the future too. Notice that Babylon is described as the mother of prostitutes, that there will be other great prostitutes that come after her in the future. As we saw, the beast was, now is, and is yet to come. He keeps on repeating. He keeps on uh, rising up in opposition to God. Just when you've got rid of one tyrant and one great nation, another comes in its place. And of course, it's not just nations or individuals that can rise up in opposition to God, but entire cultures and societies So that as Pastor Daryl Johnson puts it in his commentary, it's still possible to wake up one morning and discover that you're living in Babylon. So let's move on secondly then and look at Babylon's personality. Because I think that as we look at these characteristics that John gives us of this woman, of God-opposing societies, I think it will reveal to us that you and I do live in Babylon. Firstly, Babylon is characterized by godlessness, as symbolized by adultery and idolatry. So in chapter 17 and verse 2, we read that with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. How do you commit adultery with the Roman Empire? 
Well, in simple terms, what is happening here is that the nations of the world are going after Babylon, after Rome, wanting to be with her, wanting to be like her. They're giving to Rome an allegiance that is due to God alone. Instead of pursuing God and seeking first his kingdom, the nations of the world are going after the wealth and the luxury and the values of Rome. On another level, you'll remember that when Rome took over another nation or when the nations sought to align themselves with Rome, they were required to worship the gods of Rome. And John is writing at a time when the emperors of Rome are being treated as God. The current emperor, Domitian, is proclaiming himself our Lord and God. God-opposing societies are godless in that they both push out the one true God and set themselves up as God instead. The reason that the nations of the world go after Babylon is because of her second characteristic, her seductive attractiveness. In chapter 17 and verse 4, we read that the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand. Rome looked so splendid and grand and attractive. But read on. John says she held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. While Rome was splendid and powerful on the outside, she was morally bankrupt. George Caird says in his commentary, in this verse, the magic is broken. The fairy godmother who has put her spell on the whole world through the brilliance of her appearance and the munificence of her presence is revealed as the old witch. Thirdly, Babylon is characterized by antagonism towards and persecution and killing of the people of God. So chapter 17 and verse 6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. The persecution of God's people has been a major theme right the way through the book of Revelation. Because if Babylon pushes away God and sets herself up as God, then she cannot tolerate people who remain faithful to the one true God. And John's readers are experiencing that. They're about to face persecution and death for saying Jesus is Lord. And still today, all over the world, we have brothers and sisters who are imprisoned and tortured and killed for their faith right now today. But beyond that, as we saw in a previous sermon, within our own society, we see a a rise in militant atheism and secularism and relativism that demands conformity and punishes those who do not conform, so that more and more Christians who express their beliefs risk losing friends, losing a promotion, losing their job. Fourth, we see in Babylon a greedy materialism. Chapter 18, verse 3. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. 
And in chapter 18 and verse 12, we read about the immense luxuries of the merchants, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, etc. The ancient writers have recorded for us the tremendous volume of trade that Rome engaged in with the surrounding nations, as well as the wealth that it brought in through taking over other nations. But we also know about Rome's passion for excessive luxury and extravagance. At one of Nero's banquets, the Egyptian roses alone cost nearly $100,000, just one party. Another emperor, Vitellius, had a fondness for delicacies like peacock's brains and nightingale's tongues. Doesn't sound particularly attractive, does it? But in his reign of less than one year, he spent an estimated $20 million, mostly on food. But what of our own society? We have people in our world whose personal wealth is greater than the wealth of some countries. And haven't all of us, to one extent or another, been seduced by what one writer calls the toxic, poisonous pursuit of wealth and luxury, and sometimes gluttony and material goods, that takes things which God has given us for our common good and turns them into a kind of privatized idolatry of wealth and material things, what Jesus called the God Mammon. The fifth characteristic of Babylon is inequality and oppression. Did you notice the last item on that long list of merchandise in chapter 18, verse 13? Cargoes of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and the bodies and souls of men. Rome's splendor and grandeur was built on the backs of slaves. Slaves were considered property, objects that their masters could do with as they pleased. It's interesting, in Proverbs chapter 22, we read that the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. So that in our world today, people become slaves through poverty and debt. And we have this whole system in which the rich keep on getting richer and the poor keep on getting poorer. Last year, the World Bank determined that South Africa is the most unequal country in the world. Close to one in five South Africans live on less than 28 rand a day, about 800 rand a month. And at the same time, the top 10% of our population, the country's wealthiest people, own half the nation's income. I'm not an expert on social issues, but in his sermon on this passage, pastor and Bible scholar Chris Wright says this, Today's Babylon is no longer just a single sovereign state, but a whole global system of economic dominance, transcending national boundaries and national power. We know that some of the great corporations of our world are far more powerful than many governments of the world. There is a system that is global, that is powerful, that is greedy, that is there in the world. And on the one hand, there's enormous potential in our globalized economic world to help lift people out of poverty. 
But the reality that we so often see is that this corporate kind of economic Babylon produces even greater inequality and suffering and poverty. And you have all the violence that goes along with defending the privilege of the rich. And among the worst affected in that system are sisters and brothers of ours in Christ who live as some of the poorest of the poor. And so we have this paradox that Christians are dying in our world partly as a result of the persecution of the state, but also as a result of the corrupt and destructive consumerism that dominates our culture, in which some of the wealthiest in our world are also Christian. And I wonder what God makes of that. Number six, we see Babylon's arrogance. Chapter 18, verse 7. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I'm not a widow, and I'll never mourn. The arrogance that believes that this God-rejecting, oppressive materialism can just keep on going indefinitely. Well, having looked at Babylon's identity and personality, let's look thirdly at her destiny. In chapter 18, we have a funeral dirge for Babylon, a a lament for this great city which has been destroyed. And it's quite astonishing. Uh, One Bible commentator points out that at this point, Rome was at the height of her powers. There was no serious threat to her frontiers, nor any sign of major uprising from her own subject people. Pirates had been cleared from the seas and brigands from the countryside. Elegant cities dotted the shores of the Mediterranean and were to be found in many inland regions as well. Soon the tyrant Domitian would fall and the empire would enter its golden age. But John knows that Rome is going to fall. And so sure is he of this that he actually speaks about the fall of Babylon in the past tense. The Roman Empire would only fall in 476 AD, about 380 years after John. But John can still say, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Rome falls because of the direct judgment of God. Chapter 18, verse 8, she will be consumed by fire for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. But notice how this judgment takes place. Back in chapter 17, we read that the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. In other words, there is a sense in which God-opposing nations and societies self-destruct. Evil turns on itself and destroys itself. Because God has created the world to work in a certain way. And when men and women go against that, life fragments and breaks apart. In Romans chapter 1, we read about how God's wrath comes on those who fail to acknowledge him, but his wrath comes by his giving them over to what they desire. In other words, God's judgment comes by his taking his hand off, or rather taking his hand of control off us and giving us what we want, which leads to our own destruction. Now, John's description of the identity and the personality and the destiny of Babylon isn't actually given for Babylon. 
It's given for God's people living in Babylon. John is writing to believers, to you and to me. And in the light of all that he has said, he issues us with two calls in this passage. Firstly, there's the call to come out. In chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. This was the call to Israel living in Babylon. When Babylon was about to be destroyed, Jeremiah said, Come out from her so that you will not be destroyed. And the call comes again, Come out of her. But the question is, where are we to go? (laughs) Our world has become Babylon. How can we escape? Well, John isn't promoting escapism or isolation, but he is promoting distinctiveness. In that often used phrase, he's calling us to be in the world, but not of the world. John himself wrote in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. James is even more stark, and he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And he speaks of it in terms of adultery. As one writer puts it, we need to come out of the world in the sense of having a mental, moral, spiritual resistance and rejection of the values of consumerism of our culture. We're to serve God, not mammon. And that will mean that we are alert to the lies that underlie so much advertising, that we resist the seductive nature of consumerism and shopping malls and everything else, that we're content with sufficient, with, with sufficient and not the greed of always wanting more. It's such a difficult thing to do, but we're to be different to the world around us. In fact, Paul writes in the book of Romans and he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we spend time in God's word, reading about God's values and the things that God's love, which over time hopefully displaces the messages that we're getting from the word, from from the world rather. When we spend time in God's word, we begin to take on some of his values. And so the question is, how much television and advertising am I watching? How much of the world's values am I incorporating? And how much time am I spending in God's word, valuing the things that he loves? So we're called to come out. And secondly, we're called to rejoice. Chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way that she's treated you. Now, this isn't a sort of vindictive gloating over Babylon, but rather a rejoicing that God's judgment of the nations is a vindication of his people. 
You see, Christians had been condemned by the Roman Empire. They'd been put to death as criminals, but God's judgment on Rome is his declaration that they are not guilty, that they are his beloved sons and daughters. But there is also rejoicing because a new creation is coming. This command to rejoice eventually ends in a hallelujah chorus at the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, the word hallelujah is used more times in this, in, in this text than it's used anywhere else in the Bible outside the book of Psalms. Beginning of chapter 19, we read, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. A world that is finally free of sin and evil and greed and materialism and abuse and oppression is something worth rejoicing over. And so just those few observations from these magnificent chapters today. Someone has pointed out that the book of Revelation is really the tale of two cities. You have Babylon and the New Jerusalem. And it's also a tale of two women. On the one hand, there is Babylon, the great prostitute, and on the other is the perfect, spotless bride of Christ. And of course, the question for us this morning is this, to which city do we belong? To which woman do we align ourselves? You see, you can only rejoice over the destruction of Babylon if your heart is not there. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if our heart is in Babylon, then when it falls, we will weep. But the Bible calls Christians to consider themselves foreigners and aliens on earth. Those who long for, one, uh, for another city. Those who long for an eternal city, whose architect and builder is God.